Well, we sometimes bemoan living in this multicultural world that we are in because there are many elements trying to sanitize Christ out of Christmas. And so what often happens is we try to take these religious elements out of it in deference to all, we end up hiding the Christ. So we, this season, are focusing on the hidden Christmas. And, you know, we can complain about that, but it's not all bad news, not necessarily so. Because instead of relying upon our government or our business community or the schools to tell the story of Christ, we get to tell the fresh story of Christ. We get to tell our story of how Christ has impacted our lives. In some ways, we're kind of like those first century Christians. For people throughout the Roman Empire who were hearing the Christ story for the first time, except that we don't have to start totally from scratch. Just uh, Friday, I was out shopping with my daughter for her birthday, and in the stores, we were hearing Christmas music. Plenty of songs that were sacred songs that we sing in church on Sunday. Songs like Hark the Herald Sing, the angels sing, where it says, Born that man no more may die, born to raise the son of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. So moments are going to come, even those that do not have the background that we have, they're going to, it might be a child perhaps, it's going to ask, a, what is this newborn king or what does the second birth mean? And we will have the opportunity to share it if we're ready to articulate our faith. I remember several years ago, we had down in southern Indiana at Floyd Central High School, it was one of the best a cappella choirs you would ever hear, high school students, but they were so well crafted in what they did. And it was mostly due to the director, Mick Neely. I love watching him. He's so passionate when he directed. And we had the opportunity at our church to hear this group often because we had a little in with Mick. His wife was our organist. So we, we got him around most, most years, and, and our congregation certainly appreciated it. But I remember asking him one time, I said, Mick, how do you get away with singing all this sacred music? I mean, you teach in a public school, and what about separation of church and state? Aren't you afraid of someone challenging you with a lawsuit or something? And he said, no, not at all, Jerry, because I can argue well that the best music that's choral music is Christian music. So I think we don't need to be totally afraid of what society does with the Christ story. We have a great story to share. And no matter how hidden Christ becomes, God will find a way, especially if we're willing to be his messengers. So I hope this series is going to equip you. I hope it helps you uh, grasp some of the key themes of what the Christ story is all about. Because God has come. May we integrate the incarnation of God into our lives and share the story that God has chosen to enter into human history here on earth. Now, Good question to ask when you read the Gospel of Matthew is why does he start with a genealogy? Can you imagine opening up a novel and the first thing you read in the first page is 42 names of who begat who? But that's how Matthew begins his Gospel. And he does so for some very good reasons. I mean, you're, you're lucky we didn't read the whole thing. Aaron got off lucky today because he only had to read a few names. There's 42 names he could have read, and there are some of them a lot harder than what he had to read today. But Matthew does this for a purpose. It, Matthew's book is one of the most structured and intentional books you'll read in the Bible. 
Because he, he knows what he's trying to share. He knows the message he wants to get across. He's writing to Jewish Christians and also skeptical Jews about this Christ story. And he knows that a long time has passed now for when Christ walked this earth. And what happens with famous people is sometimes stories arise that don't share the real story. He wants people to know that what he's writing is genuine and true and worth paying attention to. So the first purpose in Matthew's genealogy is foremost trying to establish that Jesus' story is grounded in history. It's a real story. He's not some mythical figure. His life is not a metaphor. The stories we're going to find are not Aesop fables that got moral stories for us to hear and then discard. These are stories that are grounded in the life of what God has done in sending his son into our world. These are in history, human history. And if we take that away from the Christmas story, Christmas will lose all of its meaning. A few weeks ago, my wife and I went on a vacation down to Atlanta, Georgia, and we noticed that we weren't that far away from Warm Springs, Georgia. If you know your history, you might know that happens to be the place where FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, former president, three times, three-term president of our country, because of his polio, would go down to Warm Springs that had the hot springs there in those low-lying mountains. And we went to see that, and what was interesting is that that is the place, not only where he went to occasionally during his presidency, it happens to be the place where he died while he was president in his third term. And it was fascinating to watch and look in that, that little home. It was a very modest home because FDR noticed that that the residents around him had very modest homes. They didn't want to be that out of place, so he built a small cottage for them to be there when they visited. And they still have in place because when he died 73 years ago, it's like everything just stopped. That, that community so revered him that everything in that house is just the way it was when he died 73 years ago. The, the, the chair that he was sitting in when they were drawing his portrait while he suffered a stroke is still in the same spot that it was. They have the portrait that's half done that they started but could not finish is still there on site, encased. They had the bed you could walk right by where he died in. They even had in the adjacent bathroom the same toilet paper that was there 73 years ago. Still there. You wouldn't want to use it, but but it made it come to life. It wasn't just history. It wasn't just words on, on some history book. This was real, very real. And that's what Matthew's tempting to do with this genealogy. He wants us to know that this is not a myth. This is not the gods uh, coming and acting like human beings as it is in Greek literature. This is God becoming human like us in every way. It's grounding his book in history because Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection is going to defy what we sometimes know in this world. This Jesus who will exercise demons, who will bring healing, who will defy the ruling powers, and who will ultimately be resurrected is real. In spite of these amazing things, Matthew declares Jesus was born in human history and he was born unto us. His genealogy also serves to make another point. Aaron kind of alluded to it last Sunday when he made that vivid point that none of us create light, we only reflect it. The genealogy sends the same message, especially as he's talking about 
salvation. This is not a morality play. This is about what God has done and God is doing. Christmas declares that God has come to us, come down to us. And the whole genealogy declares that God was planning this for some time. Did you notice that detail about three sets of 14 generations shared? That translates to six sets of seven. Seven's a perfect number in the Bible. And Jesus, then, is the seventh seven. Jesus comes at exactly the right time for us. And we need to grasp that this is the story of salvation that's given to us. It's not something we achieve. It is provided for us by God. It's something that we receive. We cannot save ourselves. But, you know, many of us are still trying. Many of us approach the Christian faith as if it's, it's some method of self-improvement. It's where we get a little inspiration and guidance for life. But if this is what we're up to, we haven't grasped the full message of the Christian faith. We haven't grasped what Christ is about. The Christmas story is about God coming down to earth as a child to be like us in every way so that he can save us from ourselves. We need to realize that ultimately... We are helpless. And we may fool ourselves for a while, for perhaps a reasonable time, as we have a little bit of success in this life, but ultimately, we're going to fail. Ultimately, life is going to fail us, and ultimately, someone who's important to us is going to fail us. And then, where do we turn? That's when we discover the real meaning of salvation. And I know I need to hear that. I hope you need to hear it as well, because deep down, I'm not really good at depending on anybody, especially God. I like to be self-sufficient. I, I like to do things I don't like doing what people tell me, even if it means I'm going to mess things up once in a while. And I'm still learning that lesson in life, that life is a lot bigger than the resources that I sometimes have. But fortunately, I've tasted salvation. And I tasted it at a very young age. You know, I've shared many times I grew up in a home with a schizophrenic mother and a father who was not always present. Sometimes I was more taking care of my mother than she was taking care of me. And I tried as hard as I could to protect my mother from all the stresses of life so she wouldn't be set off into those worried states that she often did. But with a paranoid schizophrenic, that is impossible. And I experienced failure many, many times at a young age. I remember a time when I was in junior high, and we had a lay witness mission come to our church. That's where people came from miles around, both young and old, who shared the story of how God had made a difference in their life. And I listened to that story, and I listened to how they talked about the spirit that they had gained that helped them get through life. And I wanted that spirit. And I went down to the altar, and I prayed hard. I prayed like I'd never prayed before. I prayed for my mother. I prayed for my family. I prayed that I might have the resources I need. And, and, and let me tell you, that prayer was probably praying more for magic than it was for God's comfort. But that was okay. Because God gave me just enough at that point in my time to help me know I was no longer alone. I'd, I'd have to learn later that that God doesn't always give you what you want. But I felt God there. And from then on, 
I've never been completely alone. And I needed to hear that as a teenager who was isolated sometimes in my life. And that was such an important step of trusting someone besides myself with my problems and with the challenges of this world. And that's what Christmas is about. It's what God has done for us. That's what Matthew's trying to say with the structure of this genealogy. And there's one more important lesson for us as we look at this genealogy. Tim Keller makes a really helpful point in understanding this. He says, you know, genealogies in ancient times served as people's resume. It's a way that they shared about their family and their pedigree and their clan, the people that you're connected to. It was the way that you said, this is who I am. Now, I don't know how much you've dove into your genealogy. I, I don't really enjoy it too much. But fortunately, I've got a brother who does. And so he's unearthed lots of fun stories. And that's what I do enjoy about genealogies, the stories about our families. My brother has unearthed that we have a great, 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 great grandfather who graduated from Harvard. And he's buried in the Granary Cemetery in downtown Boston, the same cemetery that Paul Revere is buried. It's a pretty cool story. I think I've shared before that he's also unearthed that we have a relative, I think it's a great, 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 great aunt that taught Thomas Edison and told him that he would never amount to anything. <laughs> and that seems to jive with what we read. That I've read that his mother took him out of public schools because that structured system didn't work for him. He couldn't handle sitting still. He was too smart for all that. And that's what makes Matthew's genealogy so interesting. Because most genealogies, most people, when they do resumes, they clean things up. I mean, our resume, we, we don't put in the bad parts. We don't put in the jobs where things didn't all go so well. And the same was true in ancient times. King Herod took out the names of people he didn't want connected to him in his genealogy. But Matthew does something totally opposite of that. He includes people that nobody would want to include in the genealogy. He even includes women. And in that patriarchal society, nobody ever included women. They didn't matter back then. But to Matthew, they did. So in his genealogy, he shares women, and Tim Keller describes that, that Matthew included the gender outsiders in our world. In addition to just the fact that he shared women, he shared these particular women. He shared people that were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth are two Canaanites and a Moabite, people that the, the Israelites looked down upon. Why would you want them in your genealogy? They were the people, according to the Mosaic Law, were unclean. You might say they're the refugees of their day. They were not allowed in the temple to worship. They had to stay outside in the court of the Gentiles. They were considered racial outsiders. And then the particular women that he chose would raise eyebrows as you read these stories. They recall even though they were many times victims themselves, they recall some of the most immoral and sordid stories within the Bible. Matthew verse 3, chapter 1 verse 3 says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, <clears throat> let me see if I can share the PG-13 version of this story. 
Tamar's husband died, who was the son of Judah. Jewish law says then you give her to the next son, and hopefully he can help her father a child. She was still childless. And then because he was not righteous himself, he died. So Judah starts getting to think that, that Tamar is cursed. He's got a third son. And he didn't want to lose the third son, so he keeps putting it off and putting it off, giving her to him. And Tamar realizes that if she's going to have a child, she's going to have to take things in her own hands. And so she arranges for Judah unknowingly to sleep with her, and she gives birth. So it's by incest that this family's family line continues. Out of this dysfunction comes the Messiah. We also have Rahab who was a Canaanite, and she happened to be a prostitute within the city walls of Jericho. She was wise enough to see that God was with the Israelites, and she chose to help them, to assist them in their endeavor to conquer the city of Jericho. And then she became a heroine in spite of her past. And then we have in this verse 5, now verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. You notice they don't mention who is. Do you know who that is? It's Bathsheba. That's right. It's Bathsheba. Matthew chooses not to mention her name because he didn't want to drag her through the mud because it wasn't her sin. It was David's sin that brought about these circumstances. And, of course, he seduced her, and then he had her husband Uriah put in the front lines so that he would die. Again, a very immoral situation that the Bible recalls. So in Matthew's genealogy, we have gender outsiders, cultural outsiders, racial outsiders, and moral outsiders. And yet, he's decided to include all of them. Why does Matthew do that? He does it because he's trying to declare that God includes all people, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they come from, regardless of what they have done. He tells us that no matter what your pedigree, no matter how your life has been tainted by sin by yours or someone else's, you are a part of this kingdom that God is building through his son that he's sending down. And that's so important for us because we spend so much time trying to be respectable, trying to make sure that our life is right and righteous in so many ways. And God says, I got a better idea. Instead of you worrying about being infected by sin, how about I infect you by holiness? I'll send my child into your world as it is, as you are. And you'll find that he will bring you grace and the power and glory of God as you receive that Christ child into your life. So if you've ever felt like you're on the outside looking in, regardless of what has happened in your life, then you need to study and pray through this genealogy as boring as it might be, and discover that in Jesus' family tree, all are included, every one of us. There's nobody that's considered unfit and doesn't belong. In Jesus, we find in him the one who's come down to earth, who's made a place for everyone.